1: Call ClayGranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done.
2: Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps.
0: Monster House presents.
2: Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our monster talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. When I was a kid growing up in small-town Georgia, we had a fenced-in lot next to my house that I spent a lot of time playing in. In the summertime, I'd build tree houses and play insufficiently staffed baseball games with the neighborhood kids, and at night, I could go out and sit in that field and look at the sky searching for UFOs. I'd watched enough sci-fi to know that they had to be out there. Mysterious lights would blink across the sky. Was that Skylab? Was it a flying saucer? And if it was a flying saucer, when would they land? In 1978, there was a TV show called Project UFO, which presented dramatized versions of the Project Blue Book cases. And its iconic opening really gave the topic the gravitas that my 11-year-old self thought it demanded. The show began with this chilling text before producer Jack Webb began speaking over drawings of flying craft. And it intimates that we've been visited by these entities since biblical times. This program is a dramatization inspired by official reports of governmental investigations of claims of reported sightings of unidentified flying objects on file in the National Archives of the United States.
1: Ezekiel saw the wheel. This is the wheel he said he saw. These are unidentified flying objects that people say they are seeing now. Are they proof that we are being visited by civilizations from other stars? Or just what are they? The United States Air Force began an investigation of this high strangeness in a search for the truth. What you were about to see is part of that 20-year search.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
2: Our culture is inundated with an insatiable fascination with UFOs and intelligent non human visitors. Are they extraterrestrials? Are they ultra terrestrials? Does the government know about this? Are there really physical crafts from other realms visiting us? These questions get asked over and over again by believers, skeptics, seekers, and investigators. Some see this as a fascinating product of post-World War II allies grappling with the complexity of having developed atomic weapons, yet having no sense of having earned a responsible mastery of that devastating technology. Some see this as an ancient story of humanity coping with the cosmic. And some think that the government's hiding the truth from us. Whether you view this topic with skepticism, wonder, paranoia, horror, or exaltation, the very act of trying to understand is at the heart of David Halpern's book, Intimate Alien. This is one of the very best written books I've read on this topic. It's a difficult topic to grasp. It's joined from a series of small stories into a vast, complicated narrative. It would be nearly impossible to do a complete survey of the field of UFO studies in a single heftable volume but Halper makes a compelling case that UFOs are impossible that they're being seen anyway and that they have a powerful meaning to those who experience them arguably they also have a powerful meaning to those who only hear the testimony of others and in this sense the field does begin to resemble a kind of religion it's no coincidence that Halpern's background is in religious studies, for there is much about this topic that's built more on faith than on fact. Karen and I really enjoyed this interview and David's book, and I hope you will as well. A link to Intimate Alien and to several other books and topics that we discuss in the show are in our show notes. Monster dog. Today we're talking with David J. Halpern? he is an emeritus professor of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. His academic career included studies of Jewish mysticism, and he's also had a lifelong, though sometimes interrupted, interest in UFO culture. In his book, Intimate Alien, he looks back at the history of UFOs and manages to weave key biographical moments in his own life into that narrative. It's a book about UFOs, myths, and personal journeys of discovery and insight. In other words, It's a book about finding meaning in the stochastic and sometimes absurd landscape of stories of mysterious flying crafts and visitors. Welcome to Monster Talk, David Halperin. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. So we often start out our interviews with like a question about, you know, how did you get interested in this? But your book is really kind of an autobiography that discusses your life and myth and meaning. So... Can we start out by telling listeners who you are and a little bit about your boomerang path that took you
1: into UFOs, out of it, and then back again? I'd be delighted. Okay, well, I was a teenage ufologist. I was completely persuaded that UFOs were real and that it was my destined task to solve their mystery And I remained so until just before I went to college. And then I got interested in other things, Semitic and classical languages, Judaica, but kept finding myself drawn back to UFO-related topics, the visions of Ezekiel religious traditions of heavenly ascent and other worldly journeys, some of them rooted in the book of Ezekiel. And I think I was aware, even while I was pursuing these things as a graduate student and then as a young professor at UNC, that this was my old ufology in more respectable guise Because although I had ceased to believe in UFOs, they had never ceased to cast their spell over me. And perhaps my deepest wish was to explore what that spell was, what that spell still is for me, and what it is for millions of other people. And that is how Intimate Alien, came to be written.
0: Well, David, could we talk a little bit about the title of your book and why it's called Intimate Alien?
1: But yes, I think that the most basic significance of the UFOs is death and that I think death is the most alien thing that we can conceive or rather fail to conceive, since I don't think any of us has any grasp whatsoever what it is to be dead. And at the same time, it's intimate. It's born with us. It's bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh growing with us until the day that we do actually die. So this was my statement of what i saw as i put it in the subtitle the hidden story of the ufo was about
0: very interesting
2: intimate aliens not a funny book it's a serious book and i was very impressed with both the scope of the material and your particular selections for which cases to cover i think your selections are very historically significant But specifically, I'm thinking here about the fact that you included Communion and Whitley Strieber stuff, and you also included the Shaver Mysteries, which is something I think a lot of people are unaware of, but which still has an incredible influence in this field. And I've been describing Intimate Alien to my friends as being a sort of inoculating primer for this material because you give an introduction to the material, but you also don't shy away from pointing out logical inconsistencies and points of material implausibility in the stories. And yet yet you don't get hung up on this question of is this stuff real? I think Karen and I, especially over the years we've been doing Monster Talk, have concluded that to some extent it doesn't matter if this stuff is real or not because it still influences people. So what motivated your approach to this material? How did you come to the material in this way where you can talk in this slightly detached mode, some steps away from whether things are real or not? And in other words, how did you find your narrative approach?
1: Yeah, well, I think I'm going to tell a little, your your listeners, a little bit of my autobiographical detail, which is that I grew up in a household where uh, I was the only child, and where my mother was slowly dying of a heart condition. And it was, I guess, when I was 12, going on 13, that more or less fortuitously, I stumbled upon UFOs through the writings of the greatest of the UFO myth makers, Gray Barker his uh, his book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, in which he sets forth the foundation of the myth of the men in black that was later to become famous on the movie screens. And I read the book, and at first I was terrified by it. Then I was inspired by it. I was absolutely convinced by it. And The question that I ask myself in the book, that I've asked myself repeatedly, is what was there in this really rather fantastic narrative that so completely captured my belief? And the answer I've given myself is that the men in black, the... Beings, I don't know if I want to call them even men, because it's not clear that they're human. The beings who suppress the truth about flying saucers, who terrorized flying saucer investigators into silence. These were individuals whom I knew from my personal experience. That I knew that in our house, there was something we could not talk about. There was a dreadful secret, and the enforcers of that secret seemed to me indubitably real. And once I believed in the men in black, it followed that I would believe in the flying saucers that they suppressed. Not necessarily, not necessarily that these flying saucers were from outer space. It was only a bit later when I became, through my correspondence networks, introduced into the wider world of ufology that I bought into the standard explanation of the UFOs, but certainly that they were real, that there was something terrible about them that must not be revealed, and that my ufology, I'm saying something now that I can understand, I can grasp only in retrospect, that my ufology was a way that I could face and survive the terrifying realities which, for me, UFOs symbolized. So I... Came into young adulthood, I would say, knowing that there was something tremendously significant about UFOs, certainly significant for me, also quite convinced that they did not exist in any physical sense. And in this state of mind, quite by accident, I met Jacques Vallée in Stanford, And he had recently, this was in 1970, he had recently published his Passport to Magonia, which I take as one of the seminal works of ufology, in which he puts UFOs into the context of world folklore, including some of the biblical traditions that I had made myself familiar with. And I saw this as a vehicle to understand what the UFOs meant to me and and why they were so important. Reading Passport to Begonia stimulated me to reread a book that I had first read at age 12, but of course as a 12-year-old couldn't make head or tail out of, and that was Carl Jung's Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the skies, in which Jung lays out the groundwork for my approach to UFOs. And I should say that it was about five years after that that I came across this was, I was in, living in Jerusalem at the time, and I found in the British Council Library a copy of Carl Sagan and Thornton's pages ufos a scientific debate which was a collection of papers given in 1969 at the american association for the advancement of science which included a paper on this by two psychoanalysts on the psychological aspects of ufos and at the end of the paper these uh, uh the, the, these two psychoanalysts uh, greenspoon and persky made the suggestion that the effective power of the UFO is connected with our mortality, that those who advocate for the extraterrestrial hypothesis are denying the finite nature of life, whereas those with a need to deny that there is any anxiety at all around the issues of death and immortality, may be led to attack the hypothesis with considerable passion. And these sentences resonated in me, not only because of my own experience with ufology and with my mother's illness, I should mention that she did die when I was 16 years old, but also because they seemed to acknowledge that the emotional investment in UFOs was not limited to the believers. That some of the skeptics, some of the debunkers, seemed to show comparable just with a minus sign attached rather than a plus sign. And I thought, we have to explore what is this thing, the UFO that can provoke such blind enthusiasm and blind rage at the same time. Okay, first of all, you covered a lot
2: of really good, interesting stuff there, and we'll get back to that. But I have a personal interest in Stanford in the early 1970s. I assume that you must have met Valet somewhere near the Stanford Research Institute or that he was working there at the time doing research around that time?
1: Well, I was working for a professor at Stanford who was editing medieval Hebrew texts, and he was one of the first people in the humanities to see the the potential of computer science for helping with that kind of project. And he instructed me to take courses in computer science. Which I regret to say I never pursued very far. But in the course of that, he introduced me to some of the computer people at Stanford, and one of these happened to be Jacques Vallee. I had seen his uh, 1965 book, Anatomy of a Phenomenon, which was before, which was while he was still a more or less conventional ufologist, and I said, "But you know, boy, you know, I did UFOs myself once upon a time." Neat.
2: Thanks for sharing that. The the Stanford Research Institute is fascinating to me because it's where we get the birthplace of things like the computer mouse. There was a guy named Doug Engelbart who ran a program there, and he introduced people to the idea of document sharing, like editing documents at the same time and GUI interfaces and live collaboration networked. And all of this was like way back in 1968. And SRI is also where we get the remote viewing program that the military was involved with. And Jacques Vallée was there. And I guess he was involved with this stuff around the same time as Uri Geller being out there. And you've got DARPA tech projects and psychic spy programs. It's this really odd mix. Somebody really needs to do a history of that period with SRI because there's that overlap between the hard sciences. And I don't know what you'd call them, the sort of paranormal adjacent type stuff. It's a fascinating period of history. And I just... I just love the unexpected historical intermixing of real science and aspirational research at this one weird location. It's so fascinating. But let's get back to the UFO and alien stuff.
0: Yeah, David, uh, I wanted to, uh, to ask you, a big theme in the book is that of myth and meaning. And since both come up again and again in your work, could you define myths as you use the term and talk a little bit about how they relate to finding meaning?
1: Ah, uh, for me, a myth is a collective dream of the culture, and if we follow Jung, as I am very much inclined to do, at times of the species, and they, it has by almost by its existence, it comes as comes as a vehicle of meaning to communicate things to us that we prefer very often not to look at. So whenever I would examine an ancient myth, and let's take as a prime example of an ancient myth, the one that I personally am most familiar with, and that is the myth of the expulsion from Eden in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, that I have to ask, what does this come to convey? And I think when we look at Genesis 3, the more we look at it, the more depth of meaning we find on one level, yes, it's certainly about sexual awakening. On another level, it is about the relationship of our sexuality, on the one hand, to our mortality, on the other hand, to our moral awareness. And how these things interact, how they are tragic, but also productive of a new life. And this would be my, exa- my example of how a myth can be studied for meaning instead of just dismissed as, well, Adam and Eve never existed, the garden never existed, and snakes can't talk. Yes, all of which are true, but which are not relevant to the power of that ancient story that continues to haunt us. And I think the same is true of the UFOs as a whole and the specific myths that comprise the mythology. And notice, I have to stress here, that like Jung, I do not use myth to mean bonk or nonsense but something that is profoundly true that must be understood symbolically and so i will ask with Ro- roswell having become the most familiar U- the most familiar myth within the ufo mythology i think there are there are very few people though i must say, I have run into one or two for whom the name Roswell doesn't mean anything. What is it coming to teach us? What is the awareness that it brings to us? And to me, the way the starting point has to be that it is a story about death, about the shattering of childlike beings who seem to have the power to fly through the skies.
2: One of the strange challenges of of deep diving into this material is when you get a deep understanding of the history uh, and the way these stories have changed over time, and then you run into people whose only exposure to this stuff is through glossy, slick documentaries on TV, it's hard, I think, to have conversations with people who are – they feel like they're super familiar with it because they've watched a show, but they don't know about the nitty-gritty of things. I don't know if you've had that sort of challenge, but it's so frustrating because I, when I want to have conversations with people about these these topics, I don't always want to sound like the guy who's just saying over and over again – well that's not real and that's not what really happened and you shouldn't believe in that and that's not true you know it because it is and it's it's not just that they're fun it's it's that it's that these stories are significant and important to people and and I think are you making a case that the mythology here is important I guess maybe what what is the role of these myths in culture I mean it seems like we as a species, everybody makes myths and, and not just supernatural ones. We make myths about everything. I mean, you know, how did, how did America come to be founded? You know, they, they, there's always these, these, these stories and, and the myths are always these simplified, pure kind of, here's what happened. And you won't believe what happened next kind of stories. And, and I, I just, why are they important? What, <laughs> anyway. Quick, just quickly, why is your field of study important? Could
1: you explain that real quick? <laughs> because it's the royal road, as Freud put it, into the essence of who we are. Wow, that's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm quote, I'm quoting somewhat out of context Freud's statement: that dreams are the royal road to the unconscious." But I think that is true, and I think that uh, that myths are the royal road. Into our okay, I'm going to go off the diving board, for, be fully Jungian, say our collective unconscious, and that these are these are things that we become richer if we let ourselves be aware of them and bring them into consciousness. Okay, that is a,
2: a brilliant segue into something that I wanted to ask you about <laughs> because. You mention Jung frequently throughout your book, and somehow, I've I've always been aware since I guess maybe I remember talking about this in middle school that, uh, the 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 idea of the collective unconscious and Jung, but I've never really read his work to the point that I understand the significance of this idea. I I hear it a lot, and you you mention it a lot, but what is the significance of Jungian psychology. And and I'm not even saying I'm skeptical. I just don't know much about it. So,
1: yeah, I think the significance is that it provides a way of understanding our relationship, not only to each other, but to the gods and the demons and the beings with which we populate the world around us. Not in a way so as to debunk or to dismiss them, but in a way to so as to understand what they are to us. You see, I mean, there's a sort of a fundamental premise I've got here, which is, first, you know, that, that, that if I were asked to boil my theory down into one sentence, it is UFOs are a myth, myths are real. And to put it Somewhat more expansively, that UFOs convey to us, as all do all myths, something of what we are that we often do not see, and we become richer for having seen it.
0: David, you managed to do a very... Incredible job of uh, doing a survey of some of the most popular, or sorry, most important UFO cases in this book. How did you decide what to leave out?
1: To tell you the truth, Karen, I chose the cases that seemed to me to illustrate my point the best. <laughs> and I can see that that could be taken as a weak point in the book, that I chose what suits my case And left out what did not. Sure, I believe, however, that it's possible to reason from the cases that I chose, from the analyses I give, to other cases, and to the phenomenon as a whole.
0: At least you're very honest about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'll you'll you'll
2: see patterns in here. I mean, I think I I kind of thought about other ufo cases and they all do largely i think fall into this pattern of of mythification if that's a real word hey drew scott here and i'm jonathan scott reminding you that life's better with a home policy from american family insurance they can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto
1: Hello, I'm
2: Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts,
1: or say Bigfoot.
0: So who's to say that there's not alien species that are
2: Sasquatch?
1: Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe
2: every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right.
1: That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of look like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing uh-huh. and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook.
2: I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter at Chinwag Pod and Wagon. i i wonder though if you were just to ask someone uh, this sort of hypothetical person you meet at a party who's who's watched a lot of ufo tv but not done a lot of deep digging i i'm wondering is there some kind of sort of syncretized narrative of ufology that's sort of emerging out of all these stories do you do you think that there's like a because if you just look at them as individual cases, which I would argue is the best way to look at them, you you might not see these patterns, but the patterns are there. I just don't know if it means that people are forming particular, I don't even want to say religious, but I guess that falls into the whole problem of what is religion. I went to a symposium and met many, many, many people in your field, and they all seem to find that the funniest question because you can talk about all these patterns of religion but what is religion is (laughs) sorry i I don't want to force i don't want to get you into that question the the real question i have is is there a singular narrative of of ufo mythology do you think is emerging out of all this stuff do you think we'll eventually
1: get some sort of ufo canon if you will i think the single major trait that's emerging from it is that there is something vital that is being suppressed yeah i don't know i i continue to puzzle over how central the et element is to it my inclination is to say that we speak of the ufos as et extraterrestrial because we are aware Of their profound alienness, which of course brings us back, brings me back to the title of my book. Their profound alienness and the only model we have now, the only real world model for the alien is something from outer space. But I think perhaps the more central thing is that there is the alien, that we are confronting it. It's perhaps what Jung would call the numinous, and that something is trying to block it, and this something nowadays is usually associated with the government. Mm-hmm. was not ever thus. When you, uh, th- 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 there used to be a time, and I am not just engaging in nostalgia. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen surveys that there used to be a time in which most people in this country trusted the government to do what what was right most of the time and if you read gray barkers they knew too much about flying saucers even though he entertains the possibility that the men in black may be government agents he's extremely reluctant to condemn the government he says at one point uh that that surely the government knew better than us flying saucer investigators what was best for the country. And when the three men in black tell Albert K. Bender, you're on your honor as an American not to reveal any of this, Bender and Barker both take for granted that this is a binding oath and that Bender needs to respect it. Nowadays, post-Watergate, I suppose, post-everything, I mean, sometimes it feels like we're in a post-everything world, that we make this obstructive force into the government, into sinister government agencies. Again, I'm not sure if that's necessary for the the core.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that would probably be a central narrative. And, and it's one that the conspiracists love a lot. Yeah, I think that answers my question. I, I a lot of this book is about the significance of these stories and finding meaning in these stories. And I, you know, I uh, every time you talk about books that you know informed you, I think, oh, I've got that book. I've read that book. That you know, it, it got me very excited. So we've we've had a lot of the same background reading uh, mm. in this field. You, when you get to Judaism, you got me whooped real bad.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, me too,
2: but. This search for meaning, I guess one of the questions I have, what does it all mean? Because I, I, I think in terms of the uh, the idea of like people searching for the meaning of life, like there's going to be a fortune cookie somewhere that has the meaning. And I, I've always felt that the meaning of anything is going to be entirely subjective and personal. And one of the things that's bugging me is the very core of these stories, especially going back to the, the contactee movement, for example, you know, it ties right back to Blavatsky. Like, quite literally, it, it ties into theosophy and these ideas. Why do people believe that aliens are coming down and telling us stuff, but the stuff they're telling us is so boring and generic? Save the Earth. Heal the planet. You know, you know, work together. We need one world government or whatever. It, it seems like that there's... This incredible amount of mysticism, uh, which is all wrapping a a, a center that's not particularly
1: nutritious. It's not even really candy. There's hardly Mm -hmm. anything there. Well, it depends on where you want to find the center. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, what if the center is not the message? What if the visit is itself the center? And the message is sort of tacked onto it because they've got to say something, and they can't say anything new and innovative because there isn't any external being that conveys it, you know, beyond the contactee himself or herself. Am am I making sense here? What Mm -hmm. if the contact itself and not the message is the message?
2: Yeah, that that could be. And- that's the least disputable part in some ways to me i mean the, the, the <laughs> it's <just> like <laughs> i i just keep imagining these sort of godlike angelic you know visions of these 1950s contactees and the people come out and what they say is like if they just broke out and saying bird is the word or something i mean it really does not strike me as profound but you but at the same time the premise the idea that some being from another planet has come down and has a message to give
1: that is profound,
2: mm-hmm. even if the message is banal I mean, take
1: Roswell, I mean nobody represents the aliens as bringing us a message no. I mean yes yeah. they ju- but <laughs> the message is in the event, mm-hmm. and I take it that uh, the which I decode i translate i translate it out of its sim- symbolism into child humanity in its hubris straining up toward the sky is shattered and falls to permanent destruction, which I think is bound up very much with the nuclear age. In my book, I remark on how the bomb group that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki was headquartered at Roswell, and these were the people Roswell Army Airfield, and these were the people who claimed to have laid hold of the landed saucer. And now if you read Jacques Vallée's latest book, Trinity, he gives a version of the Roswell case, which backdates it to 1945, sets it at Alamo Gordo, and has a UFO that looks very much like Fat Boy that exploded over Hiro. Hiroshima, as if the, I'm going to get Freudian now, the latent content of the Roswell myth is now coming to the surface. And this, I think, and I suggested it in the book, is why UFOs become a cultural phenomenon in 1947, in the same month, actually, that the doomsday clock first appears On the cover of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, that if death is their crux, here we are dealing with a new form of death, which is collective and absolute death.
2: I feel like what you're saying is that from a Freudian perspective, a cigar-shaped craft is never just a cigar-shaped craft. What?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, a cigar-shaped craft can be just a cigar-shaped craft if it actually exists. <laughs> if I see it in a dream, then I think it's probably something else, not necessarily a penis, all right, <laughs> but, but that it's something beyond itself. But, well, but Jung asked what to me is the more interesting question, why is it disc-shaped? Yeah. Well, I mean, there we do not have any real-world models of it. And there seems no aerodynamic reason why a space visitor should come in a disk. But as a mandala, the archetype of wholeness projected by our psyches into the skies, the disk shape then becomes, to return to that word, meaningful.
0: So, David... You finish up your book talking about a UFO case that's not really any stranger than the others, yet it's not very well known. And uh, I'm a big fan of the Beatles, so I wanted to ask you about the story of John Lennon seeing a UFO in New York City. So if you could tell us a little bit about that story and why it seems to have faded um, from UFO lore instead of being well known.
1: Karen, by the way, you are putting your finger there on one from what me to me is one of the great enigmas. Which is why certain UFO stories are forgotten. Mm -hmm. We might link that, by the way, with a question we, which we may want to get into: why the African American UFO tradition is hardly known. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. see UFOs as a white American phenomenon, but it's not true. It's that Mm -hmm. the African American version of the tradition is simply ignored. And Mm -hmm. you ask why. Is a close-up sighting of a flying disc by one of the most famous men in the world. Why has that left almost no trace in the UFO literature? I do not know the answer to that question. And I am I am intrigued by it. I mean, the usual answer that I've heard is, well, everybody knows that Lenin was on drugs. And (laughs) you know, which which to me is irrelevant because I don't. You know, that that, that uh, I don't think Lennon and, and his uh, girlfriend, May Pang, saw anything physical anyway, so it makes no difference to me whether it was evoked from inside them with chemical assistance or without. But the story is, to put it very briefly, that on the evening of a hot August day in 1974, uh, Pang was toweling herself off after the shower. Lennon, who liked to walk around the apartment, a penthouse apartment, In Manhattan, who liked to walk uh, around it naked, uh, was out on the terrace, said, May, May, come out here. And there they come out and they see a disk a few hundred feet away just passing by them. And uh, I think it's May who runs to get a camera. She takes a whole roll of photos of that object. Uh, They're developed, they turn out to be completely blank from which I learned two things. Number one, that there was nothing physical there. And number two, that they're not making the story up. Because if they were, they wouldn't have invented a detail that undermines it. That they're describing some experience which to them is genuine. And mm-hmm. in again and again in their descriptions of it, they, it comes out they were nude. Okay, why, (laughs) why do they have to keep mentioning that they were naked? And I mean, if you take the conventional approach and say, well, the witness just happens to be there, then this is an irrelevancy. But if you say that the witness is part of the sighting, as I believe he or she is, Mm -hmm. then I start asking, well, where do we read about a naked human couple? Confronted by a numinous presence. And it's back to my old friend, the third chapter of Genesis. Bible. <laughs> Adam and Eve standing before God naked. Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee not to eat? Only in Genesis, the numinous presence is anthropomorphic human form. In Lenin and Pang, it's a mandala. And I think that what we have here is the eruption, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N, of what I would call the enchanted heavens into consciousnesses that would prefer to shut them out. Three years before, Lenin had had sung his most famous post-Beatles song, Imagine, in which, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. There's no hell beneath our feet, above us only sky. Well, the sky is announcing to John Lennon, I am not just only sky. And I think what we are dealing with here is the eruption of unconscious material, the same unconscious material that's presented in classical form by the anonymous author of the third chapter of Genesis.
0: Very interesting interpretation. Uh, I know that he talks about his experience in the song Nobody Told Me, but it's really just not talked about very much today.
1: Yeah. And I'd, and to get back to your original question, I just don't know why not.
2: Yeah, I—, I he would be comparable i mean to be blunt to jimmy carter seeing a ufo is you know it, it's it is weird that it's i don't even think it's being suppressed just ignored it seems like mm-hmm. you know? yeah <clears throat> yeah, but, yeah but but ignoring may be a form of suppression wow i, I suddenly feel True. like my wife mm-hmm. is suppressing me what <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, oh, it's maybe. the most devas- <laughs> it's the most devastating form of suppression. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Certainly to your ego, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This this occurred to me while we were talking. You mentioned uh, in the book the flying saucers and the three men, and also uh, they knew too much about flying saucers. So the latter is by Gray Barker, and the former is by Al- Albert Bender. And I think it's interesting because I think. I suspect more people have read they knew too much about flying saucers. And it yeah. it really sort of sets up the the men in black as as these ominous, mysterious agents. And if you read Flying Saucers and the Three Men, Bender explicitly states that they are from another planet. And it's yeah. it's kind of a letdown. And in the same way, I think in the Mothman prophecies. You get Indrid Cold, uh, who comes across mm-hmm. as kind of this menacing figure. But if you read um, Visitors from Lanulose, which is by uh, Woody Derenberger, the guy who actually met Indrid Cold, according to him, it's not like that. It's much more like a 1950s nudists in space. It feels very much more like the, uh, the contactee movement type stuff than it does this sort of ominous and myst- i I guess my point is the people who've had the direct influence or direct experience and wrote these books, their books aren't as successful in making myths <laughs> as the the sort of secondary it's like it's it's as if the story of like John the Baptist story becomes more popular than jesus's story it, it i don't why are these secondary authors successfully making myths and the actual primary
1: accounts are hardly known. First of all, remember that that Bender's Flying Saucers and Three Men came out six years after they knew too much about flying saucers. And I think it was partly created because Barker thought that he could sell the solution to the problem that he had this very significant mystery that he proposed in They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And if you read Barker's epilogue, you see that he himself was disappointed by it. Yeah, I myself think, and I argued this in the book, that Barker himself believed that Bender had discovered something extraordinary about the about the flying saucers. And then when it turned out that Bender couldn't provide anything halfway convincing, even a uh, convincing not just in the factual but But in the emotional sense, the way they knew too much about flying saucers is emotionally convincing that Barker lost his faith and experienced it as a shattering. Now, I think most ufologists, when they read Flying Saucers and the Three Men, just totally dismissed it. I personally think there was more to it than we used to give it credit for, that it seems to me to foreshadow many of the themes of the abduction tradition which had barely begun to surface and bender himself who was nowadays i mean after being practically revered as a mystery man was then dismissed as a uh a, 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 as a pathetic neurotic the bender was an absolutely extraordinary man he he was able he i don't know if you know about this but in his after he lost interest in flying saucers, which he did totally, he became fascinated by the music of Max Steiner, one of the, the forgotten greats of Hollywood. And he organized the Max Steiner Music Society, recruited some of the leading figures in Hollywood to join it and to put Max Steiner back, uh, b- back in the collective recognition and including uh the honor book or whatever it is of the state of Israel uh, I mean you're dealing here with a man who could an extraordinary man, Bender, who could make things happen where he believed in them, and I don't think he's been given credit wow, no, I didn't know that no i and
2: mm. I, I now that I've posed the question, I'm also wondering if it's, to some extent both of these cases are the people who write the more popular books are also the better writers. I mean, that's what they do. You know, that, so Woody Derenberger is not a writer. He's a salesperson, right? And you know, Yes, he wrote this book, but it's, it's not the same as John Keel, who's been doing writing for decades at this point, telling the story. Same thing, uh, Bender. I don't get the impression he was as much of a writer as uh, Gray Barker. Sorry.
1: <laughs> that may be some of it, I guess, too, right? And I think Barker put his heart into it the way Bender did not, because what I see being echoed in Barker's book is Barker's own experience as a closeted gay man in 1950s West Virginia for whom the three men in black were daily visitors. One misstep and he would be ruined. And so he would speak to a 12-year-old boy in Pennsylvania, for whom the three men in black were also daily visitors. Deep calleth unto deep, as the Bible says.
0: So we're starting to run out of time here, but uh, we're curious to ask about your studies into Jewish mysticism. What is mysticism as discussed in religious studies?
1: Oh, my <laughs> now, you, you've spared me having to answer the question, what is religion? Yeah. Now, <laughs> yeah. now you confront me with what is mysticism. To me, it is the notion that beneath the surface of the faith, there is an esoteric stream, which, although hidden, makes sense of its manifestations. Now, when I speak of hidden and manifest, I might as well say latent and manifest. And Freud, Doctor Freud, please call your office. I think (laughs) I think that the Jewish mysticism and its exploration of the hidden God is is a stream that's run beneath the surface of Judaism at, for some 2,000 years. And there are manifestations of it that I find utterly fascinating. And I don't know if we want to go into that at all. But you see why a ufologist might be drawn to it. Well, I,
2: it's certainly been of interest to me. We've we've done this sort of mini-series talking about... Um, magic and mysticism and esotericism uh, because while these are not necessarily topics about monsters, they're, they're very monster adjacent. I I assume that things like the golem come out of mysticism, not out of just regular mainstream. I don't know how that works exactly. And, and I, I've always been curious about the Kabbalah, uh, Sufism. And it seems like a lot of religions have these sort of mystic, I don't know what they are. Are they side religions? Are they religion plus? Are they bonus material? I, I don't know how that works exactly, but uh, it's a tradition of extending the faith into the realm of powers, the the realm of being able to accomplish something beyond just asking, you know, sending your queries into the sky. Is is that a misreading or is that accurate?
1: I think it's. I think it presents a facet of it. Okay, cool. I, I mean, I I mean, I often. Well, what I used to teach, we used to talk about what is the distinction between religion and magic? Is there a distinction? And I remember the, our, our graduate students always used to come to the conclusion that there is no distinction and it's artificial. I myself thought there was a distinction, but we, in that you can't make a firm boundary between the two, but you can point in one direction and say that's magic in another direction and say that's religion. So that it's not something that can be easily and flawlessly defined, but it does refer to something that has real existence. And the word is therefore meaningful. The word religion is meaningful. The word mysticism is meaningful. I will not complain if you call UFOs both religion and mysticism. Wow. <laughs> I think we can probably talk for a long time about
2: that. I I, I am oh, deeply yeah, curious topic. about that. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah.
0: Well, we've got one final question, David, which we yes. like to ask all of our guests, and that is, what's your favorite monster?
1: My favorite monster is a monster that appeared at least once or twice, possibly more, in my dreams circa 1970. And at that time I I had gone through a depression. I was entering therapy. And the monster represented some things that I was discovering in therapy. That it was, as I look back on it, an emblem, a representation of the aggressive impulses that I didn't want to acknowledge. And in my dreams, what what does that monster look like? sort of like Godzilla or Tyrannosaurus Rex. I don't know which one you want to pick, but that I was walking along on a path and the monster was walking along on a path that seemed somewhat to diverge from mine and the monster didn't bother me and I didn't bother it. And whenever I had a monster dream, I woke up deeply comforted and that's why that monster is my favorite monster
2: wow that is the most personal answer i think we've ever had <laughs>
0: it, it is and it's certainly a different interpretation of a monster
2: although it, it, it fits right into that whole thing that we've often talked about that uh you know m- monsters are meaning machines you know and that's what they are and, and they oh yeah finding you know for some people, you know, kaiju, uh, giant you know, monsters like Godzilla are are just fun monsters because they're so absurd, they can't be real. And on some other levels, they are profoundly awe-inspiring because they they're so clearly not of this world that that they can just be a gut punch. I think that's kind of what sort of Lovecraftian uh, approaches to the monster, the the, the sort of cosmic awe uh, and that sort of that spectrum of, you know, we, we love dinosaurs cause they're big and, you know, but whether things are real or not real, as I think this whole conversation has been about, we can put words to them and we can find meaning and we can try to figure out what it all is about, which I think is what this show has been doing for a decade. So Thank you so much for talking with us today. I highly recommend this book. Yeah, thank you, David. Blake and Karen, thank you so much.
0: Monster
2: Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just listened to an interview with David Halperin, author of Intimate Alien, discussing the field of UFOs and aliens. You can find a link to his book and to several other items that we discussed in our show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Big Picture Science. Good job, Brain. And My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And as always, thanks for making us a part of your listening life.